Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello? Aaron? Yes? Hey, so you sort of pride yourself on being a dad, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I'm curious, what is something that you were doing 30 years ago at this moment that today you would ground yourself for? Oh, God. 91, I was nine years old. I used to stay over at a friend's house for like he'd have slumber parties and we would sneak out and run all over the place and yes. sometimes we'd get on top of one of their roofs and we would jump from roof to roof in the You're neighborhood hitting me in the middle of the no. night yeah it was the best man we did it during the day too but oh man that is very dumb i remember one time staying the night over at this kid's house and it was like four or five of us and we all snuck out and ran across like a major intersection and it was raining and i just remember like thinking that we were really bad <laughs> i don't i don't remember what happened or where we went but did you get caught i don't think we got caught i think we snuck back in the window and no wow. one knew that's amazing i definitely would have been grounded for the language i used <laughs> i was like back then i i used every curse word under the sun but i wouldn't ground my kids for that so i don't no, know did they just like walk around Talking like sailors at the house? My kids don't. They refuse to. I ask them all the time. I'm like, what's your favorite curse word? And they're like, we don't do that. And I'm like, really? Come on. None of them? No. What's your favorite curse word? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, fuck is probably my favorite. <laughs> so it hadn't changed. I think I asked you that a couple years ago. It hadn't changed. Yeah, yeah. I'm Still. pretty sure it's fuck. There we go. Okay, well, cool. Well, uh, hey, man. Make I'd, sure you give your mom a call now. I will. <laughs> gonna be two calls at the start of this episode oh man okay uh well hey i appreciate it hey yeah anytime anytime right. you need a f on your uh, on your show you know i'm good for it okay <laughs> see you man all right see ya from mill you media group this is 30 pop a weekly peek back at the music movies sports fashion politics and news from 30 years ago i'm your host luke braun this is Season 3, Episode 38, Big Dollar Signs and Bad Sign Language. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, November 2nd, 1991. Hello once again, 30 Pop listener, and welcome to the beginning of the end of 1991. We are now officially into holiday season, which makes me very, very happy, even if the pop culture moments upon which we'll reminisce today aren't super reflective of the holidays. Although, I guess technically we did get a little more Halloween this week in 1991, if you count that. At least in movie theaters, where the top film at the box office its opening weekend was the unexpectedly successful Wes Craven written and directed satirical horror comedy, The People Under the Stairs. In every neighborhood... There is one house that adults whisper about and children cross the street to avoid. Now, Wes Craven, creator of A Nightmare on Elm Street, takes you inside. 
Something's in there. But we gotta get out of here, Leroy. All sorts of rumors about what goes on in that house. The police never took it serious. She's been feeding that thing between the walls again. Very, very tense about this. There must be another way out. Can't get out. No one ever has. What goes on in this house is a sin. Father's one sick mother, you know that? Actually, your mother's one sick mother, too. But what goes on under the stairs <laughs> is a nightmare. It is time to clean house! Craven's The People Under the Stairs. This movie was a bit of an afterthought for the studios, produced on an estimated budget of around $6 million, with Craven given pretty much free reign to do whatever he wanted. And to everyone's great surprise, it made almost its entire budget back just its opening weekend, and remained in the top 10 at the box office for several weeks thereafter, bringing in a worldwide total of over $30 million. It also brought in mixed but mostly positive reviews from critics. All this despite releasing the day after Halloween, which seems like a really odd decision in my opinion, but what do I know? It clearly worked out for them. Supposedly this movie was being developed as a series by Craven prior to his death in 2015, and then was at some point being developed as a remake with Jordan Peele in the director's chair, although I can't find any evidence of his involvement currently on imdb.com. Part of the movie's opening weekend success had to do with a relative lack of competition. Although, once again, in my opinion, Curly Sue deserved the top spot rather than second place where it remained this week in 1991. But besides that, the other new releases had no shot whatsoever. In fact, I've only ever heard of one of them. The biographical gangster film Billy Bathgate, starring Dustin Hoffman, Nicole Kidman, and Bruce Willis. You don't understand about a guy like that, Schultz. He was a nobody, just like me. But he had brains, and he had guts. And look at him now. Whatever happens to me in my life, it's going to have something to do with Mr. Schultz. Mr. Schultz, how does it feel to be public enemy number one? So I'm no public enemy. So what are you? Public benefactor. Dream of being. Who are you? Billy Bathgate. You in a gang? No, sir. I'd expect to learn anything. I think for the real training, you got to go right to the top. So he watched. He killed that man. Forget it. He listened. Why are you always listening to what you shouldn't be listening to? And he learned. Did you ever fire a gun? No, sir. Then you should learn. Oh, it's good on you, kid. You're my prodigy. You're Mr. Schultz's girl. No, I'm not his girl. He's my gangster. Now he's waiting for the moment. It will all be his. I'm so nuts about you. I can't see straight. Here's the latest development. organization 20 million dollars a year you're gonna run it like some candy store dustin hoffman nicole kidman lauren dean and bruce willis in billy bathgate now there goes a kid with luck this movie cost a ton to produce almost certainly in part because of its star-studded cast but 
only saw a return of a little over $15 million at the box office, not even a third of its budget. Another major factor in its being so expensive is that apparently Dustin Hoffman and the film's director, Robert Benton, were in almost constant conflict. In fact, it got so bad that then-head of Disney Studios, who produced the film, Jeffrey Katzenberg, had to visit the set to try to squash the drama between them. It was very messy and very, very costly. I've never seen it, but I do remember the title, and after watching the trailer, I'm honestly not sure why it did so poorly. It doesn't look like the greatest mobster movie of all time by any stretch, but it doesn't look terrible either. A critic from Variety magazine had this to say, quote, This refined, intelligent drama about thugs appeals considerably to the head, but has little impact in the gut, which is not exactly how it should be with gangster films, end quote. So maybe that was it. I don't know. I do know Nicole Kidman was nominated for a Golden Globe for her performance, so I'm sure it's not all bad. Besides Billy Bathgate, the other new releases from this week in 1991 were films like Highlander 2, The Quickening, Year of the Gun with Andrew McCarthy, Sharon Stone, and Valeria Galeno, Prisoner of Honor with Richard Dreyfuss, and the comedy drama 29th Street, which, despite failing to make back even a quarter of its minuscule $2 million budget, is actually pretty highly regarded on the various ratings aggregates like Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb.com. But even still, it's not interesting enough for me to want to cover it here. In sports news this week, just barely interesting enough to be covered here, on October 27, 1991, the Minnesota Twins beat the inappropriately named Atlanta Braves 1-0 in the 10th inning of an apparently very boring Game 7 of the World Series. This was the Twins' second title since moving to Minneapolis in 1961. For the 60 years prior to that, they were based in D.C. and known as the Washington Senators and the Washington Nationals at various times. They won one other World Series during that time, but since 1991, they haven't won again. The time between their first win as the Nationals and their first win as the Twins was 63 years. So to any Twins fans out there, if history repeats itself, you're almost halfway to your next title. However, if the law of averages works out, given that there were only four years between their second and third championships, then 2025 should be a good season. Moving right along. In television news on October 29, 1991, Ted Turner's Turner Broadcasting Systems, or TBS, acquired Hanna-Barbera Productions, the 34-year-old low-budget animation studio that had created Saturday morning cartoon staples such as The Flintstones, The Jetsons, Scooby-Doo, Yogi Bear, and The Smurfs. The company was founded in 1957 by animation partners William Hanna and Joseph Barbera 20 years after they met in the animation department of MGM and 18 years after creating their first cartoon together, a short called Puss Gets the Boot, which evolved quickly and profitably into the cartoon franchise Tom and Jerry. The purchase cost TBS $320 million and led directly to the launch of the Cartoon Network 11 months later, a network which is still thriving today as a minuscule part of the truly massive $30 billion media conglomerate Warner Media, whose parent company, AT&T, the largest telecommunications company on the planet, is worth over $250 billion, only slightly more than Jeff Bezos, and slightly less than Elon Musk. Facts that are not relevant to this show, but that I find interesting and disgusting in equal measure. Anyway, let's talk music. There was nothing new at the top of the Billboard charts this week, although there was a bit of rearranging. 
The number one spot on the Hot 100 was Karen White's Romantic, which had been number one on the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart two weeks earlier. It replaced Mariah Carey's song Emotions after three weeks at the top, which became the number one song on the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart, replacing the far superior It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday by Boys to Men, which, as I mentioned last week, deserved far more time at the top. Mind Playing Tricks on Me by Ghetto Boys and Any More by Travis Tritt were each in their final week at number one on the Hot Rap and Hot Country charts, respectively, while Garth Brooks sat comfortably at the top of the Billboard 200 chart for the fourth of eight weeks with his album Rope in the Wind. There were some major album releases 30 years ago this week, though. First up, the third straight multi-platinum selling release from pop singer-songwriter Richard Marks, Rush Street which featured the genuinely terrible quasi-subliminal diss track Superstar aimed at Madonna. An odd way to treat the person who literally launched his career, if you ask me, but whatever. Marx got his start singing background vocals on the song White Heat from Madonna's seven-times platinum-selling 1986 album True Blue. Also new in music stores this week in 1991 was the controversial platinum-selling sophomore solo release from rap icon Ice Cube, Death Certificate. This amidst an already incredibly busy year for Cube, having just made his acting debut with Boys in the Hood, and been heavily involved with the production of rapper Yo-Yo's debut album, and that of his cousin, Del the Funky Homo Sapien. The album was a huge success commercially and critically, and further cemented Cube's reputation as one of the most vital rap artists of all time. And honestly, he was just getting started. Last on the list of new album releases was the triple platinum selling fourth studio album from the newly renamed Hammer, Too Legit to Quit, which boasted the largest marketing budget of any album in the history of Capitol Records at the time, at over $1 million, and a multi-million dollar 15-minute long music video for the title track and lead single, which remains to this day one of the most expensive ever made. This album, though, despite being successful by most standards, completely paled in comparison to its diamond-selling 1990 predecessor, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Em. If you don't remember, that album held the number one spot on the Billboard 200 chart for 21 weeks in 1990, 18 of which were consecutive. This album, on the other hand, peaked at number two. The most memorable element of the song, the album, and honestly this whole era of Hammer's career And part of the reason for the exorbitantly expensive music video was the little hand gesture that accompanied the lyrics, which a number of celebrities and famous athletes performed throughout the video. You remember it. Using your right hand, you hold up your index and middle finger as if to indicate the number two. Then you switch to your index finger and thumb to make an L. You make the two sign again, and then you sort of salute in midair as if you're telling someone to knock it off. Two, L, two, quit too legit to quit. It was stupid. But it also spread like crazy. I rewatched the entire 15-minute music video in preparation for this episode, and I was shocked at how much of it I remembered. Actually, let me say that a different way. I was shocked to realize I remember every frame of the video. Every dance move, every facial expression, every line from every celebrity. I even had flashbacks of watching the making of the music video on the extended cut VHS, which I'm positive I received in my stocking that Christmas. 
it was deeply nostalgic to revisit, even while the whole thing is so, so very corny today. It was corny 30 years ago too, but I didn't have the eyes to see it then. I've included a link in the show notes to check it out, and I highly recommend it. For now though, friends, that's all I've got for you. We've now sufficiently covered this week in 1991 pop culture. More to come next week though, so I really hope you'll join me again. Until then, the golden-haired birthday boy is setting off on life's big adventure. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 